Hey guys, find Psalm 19 verse 1. That's the one verse we'll read before we get started. And then we'll go ahead and, 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 and go pretty fast, okay? In Psalm 19 verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. I know Brother Kyle prayed, but let's pray one more time. Give my heart a chance to, to get kind of focused, to be honest with you. Father, I thank You for the opportunity, Father God, to come uh, before this church, Father God, to be able to lead this Bible study. Father, I pray, Father God, that I had prepared it, uh, God, with Your intentions and not my own, Father. I know, God, I feel like everything's just a jumbled mess. But I pray, Father God, that You, God, are going to give me words that are come directly from Your heart, Father God, to the heart of this church that you are emphasizing something, Father God, that's easy, but it's something we overlook all the time, Father God, that we work our way around, that we deny, that we rationalize, Father God. I pray, God, for obedience. I pray, God, for obedience in my heart first because I am disobedient by nature, Father God, but I also pray, God, for obedience in the life of this church. I know, Father, that it's so easy for us to spurn obedience, to act like it's nothing, like we don't have to practice it, Father God. Uh, but, Lord, I know that you're... There's nothing in your scriptures, Father God, that ever leads us any other direction, Lord, than toward obedience, toward being obedient, God, to authority placed over us and ultimately, Father God, to the final authority to you. So, Father God, we pray for that now, Father God. We pray, God, that your people, God, will we'll listen, will have open, our, open uh, hearts and open ears, Father God, and will be ready to receive, God, uh, a precious word, Lord. I pray, God, that, that um, I deliver rightly, God, now, but I surrender it completely to you, Father God, for its final impact. We love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, so, we started talking about Christ as creator God, literally king of all creation. What that means, what is the impact for that in our lives. Just taking that idea, that single, it's hard to call it a doctrine, but that single point of fact that Christ is, is that. And then to, um, excuse me, I want to do that. There you go. And then to, um, to extend that into our lives. And, well, what, what do we do with that? What's our rightful response? What does it mean that, that He's the God of all creation? When I'm confronted with that truth. And I think of all, when I really started praying over this, the direction especially God was taking us in this Bible study, was that I, I recalled every time that people had those, those intimate encounters with the living God. They just never came away the same. It was always a, a watershed moment for them, an earth-shaking moment. And I'll, I'll just be blunt with you guys, I, I want that. And I think one of those, now I always call it a trap, it's not really the right term, but one of those ideas that can so easily corrupt our worship is the idea that we, we desperately need that authentic, authentic connection and that authentic moment with our Lord. So much so that what do we do? We'll, we'll, we will fake those. We will, we will. We will do things that we know aren't really right because we want it so desperately. It's not a wrong thing to want to be close to our God. It's just I think that sometimes what we've done is has corrupted that ourselves. We thought we could move close to Him by way of a counterfeit experience when He has really revealed everything to us by way of His Word. We have the intimacy we need. And I would say this in, in the same way that, that if someone wrote you a letter explaining exactly how they felt about you, 
You would know, right? You would have verified. You, you wouldn't even need for them to say that to you. You would, you would have it. And in fact, if you've ever received a letter like that, maybe a letter of affection from even a parent or something like that, they become a keepsake, don't they? They become part of your own sacred documents. You keep those forever because they're so important. You realize that if we take time to sit down and write something down, we really are, that's really a conviction for us. So, so to view the Bible in that way, of course, as, as ultimate and inerrant truth, but also to reveal it as, as God's declaration of who he is and who we are, a declara an intimate declaration in many ways. So let's, let's talk about those impacts. One we talked about last week was worship. And this week we talked about his impact of being obedience. That if, if, if he is who the Bible declares him to be, then we are beholden to be obedient to the, to the God of the universe. There's no way around it. I have to be obedient to God. If he is who he says he is, and I believe the Bible is true, and therefore every declaration is true, then he is unlike any other person in existence. And he's worthy of worship and worthy of praise, and he's also worthy of my obedience. So let's talk about that for just a little bit, okay? Um, Proper spots begins with obedience. God strikes awe over the hearts and souls of all who come into contact with Him. And that kind of realization of our human position in contrast to the eternity of Christ will lead men and women to seek a higher level of conformity to the word and will of the Lord. When we've really experienced God, truly experienced Him, there's going to grow within us an urge to obey Him. I mean, why? Well, the Bible says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Christ said that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Doesn't it make sense? I think it makes perfect, absolute sense. The idea is this. If, if when I realize how awesome but how wonderful God is, I want to please that person. I want, the, I want that person to be an intimate of mine. I mean, I, this is really strange comparison. And maybe I'm just apt for strange comparisons tonight. Have you ever met somebody in your life, and this person was just charismatic? This person just had a personality that made everybody gravitate to them. You ever met somebody like that? Do you want to be friends with them? I think there are only two options. Either you want to be friends with them or you're jealous of them. And you hate them, right? People with that much you know, innate... Um, charisma just aren't neutral in our lives. Either they're our favorite person ever or they're somebody that we despise and we see them immediately as an enemy or a rival. They elicit deep responses, deep emotional responses. Now, now we're comparing it to something infinitely greater. We meet the, 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 the charismatic draw, the allure of the infinitely holy God. Of the God whose presence is, is so often um, dictated to us in amazing ways. The God of, of Sinai. The God of the storm on the mountain. You're telling me I worship the God of the storm on the mountain? I want to know that God. And if knowing that God means I have to obey Him to know Him more deeply, I want to do that. I'm now, there's now a passionate drive in me. In the very same way, I guess you know, this is all the things... It will turn weird on me if I don't watch out here, okay? So, so forgive me. Same way when you get married. 
whether you understand it or not. You set out to learn that person more deeply than, than you know anyone else. And no way to draw attention, so please don't, don't take it that way, but I will guarantee you this much. I know more about my wife than I do about my mother. Far more. Far more. I haven't lived with my mother for almost 30 years. I know her very well. I know her voice and her handwriting, but I don't know my mother the way I know my family that I live with. I just don't. I've spent three decades learning one person. The ins, the outs, the, the pros, the cons, everything. I know it all. Because that's what that type of intimacy does. That type of, that type of intimacy, man, feeds on itself, doesn't it? I had a hunger to know more. A desire to know more. So now when we are in a love relationship with God, there ought to be a hunger and a desire to know as much as possible. A drive to know more. To realize that knowledge of God is power. That as I grow in my knowledge of Him, I'm more, more fulfilled. And that always leads back to obedience. It leads back to that idea that God is quite literally ordered. It's not just telling me what to do. What God is, is taking the chaos that I once was and bringing order to it. He is rearranging my, um, my problems and my chaotic environment into something that brings honor and glory to Him. Into the masterpiece that is God. Making me an image bearer of the living God. So let me, just, just a, a few more points. The word obedience. Now in my parlance means conforming the life of the Christian to the strictures of the word of God. If we're looking at Christian obedience, that's what it is. Um, I'm now a new believer and my life is supposed to be completely conformed to God's will. It's not. It's not. I wish. I wish you could just say, guys, I've cracked the code. I got it. The, the Keswick guys are right. I got the higher life and I've left sin behind. No, I'm not. The Keswick guys are wrong and you won't ever leave sin behind. Sin will be mortified in your flesh finally when you die. And you'll leave sin and death and all those problems behind. But just because I know I'm not going to get it, I'm still driven to pursue it. And, and, and you are too, aren't you? You're still driven to live like Christ, even though you know you do a terrible job of it. No, you know you're not even good at it. But it's like so many pursuits in our lives. Even though we know we're not good at it, we're still trying as hard as we can. We're never going to give up. This is the only thing we've got to do is just simply not give up. Now look, uh, a couple of, you know, other than myself, you know, uh, more expert voices. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary offers a concise understanding of biblical obedience by stating that it is to hear God's word and act accordingly. That is better than mine. I just couldn't steal. I had to come up with my own. I had to be smart advanced. To hear God's word and act accordingly. I hear God's word and I act on it. It calls me to repent, I repent. It calls me to forsake, I forsake. It calls me to flee, I flee. Everything that the verbs in God's commands tell me to do, I do those things. In response to whatever stimulus He's given me. I pray, I fast, I do whatever God tells me to do. Also in Erdman's Bible Dictionary, the definition of biblical obedience is given as 
True hearing or obedience involves the physical hearing that inspires the hearer. And a belief or trust that in turn motivates the hearer to act in accordance with the speaker's desires. True hearing. I I really should have just trimmed that one term out there. Because there's the issue. There's When we talk about obedience, we talk about the Word of God, especially in what is literally, as John Piper described it, a Bible-saturated culture. Not only do people have it everywhere, they hear it preached all the time. Many of us just listen to like songs that declare it. Our lives are literally soaked in the Word. But yet we manage to not follow it. Right? We manage to not, even though we absolutely know what God wants us to do. Hey, how many believers in the church know that God wants you to give a portion of your earnings to God as a sacrifice? How about 100%? How about all? How about every one of them know this? They probably even know where it's found. Yet how many actually do it? Depends on the month. Depends on the economic conditions, Ms. Pansy. Doesn't it? It can go up and down. It can fluctuate. But we all know it. So once again, there's this, there's this, this, this gulf, this division between the things we absolutely know that we know and our willingness to, to believe them. So there is some knowledge there, but there's, I think what Erdman's would say is there's a difference between hearing and true hearing. Now, the, the example I've given of this one before is sometimes we're just too busy. Um, anybody got toddlers in your vicinity? Me too. Um, um, I know it's high five, but I want to give you the praying hands emoji. It is really high five, right? We all know that, okay? But it's still in the Bible Belt become praying hands um, because we need to pray. Got those toddlers, and like when they get here in church, after church, and they're running around like crazy people, Jack carrying his cup under his arm and still running as fast as he can, and you're screaming their name, do they answer? Do they stop? Do they hear you? No. I'll tell you how you don't know. I tell you no. I tell you no. Here's the thing. You catch them for just a second and look in their eyes, and their eyes are like this. The pupils don't even match. Some wild crazy whatever force has taken hold of that toddler and they are not hearing anything but what they want to do. They've just just taken over in them. And you literally got to shake them just a little bit for them to pop back this, what, did you call my name? Now, it's not like old man, you know, selected hearing. I heard you. I just don't want to talk about that right now. It's different. And I think a lot of us are like that. We're so wild-eyed and so busy that we know God is speaking as loud as He can, but we're just not listening right now. There's no true hearing. That's why it takes conviction. That's why it takes emotional worship. That's why sometimes, guys, it takes tragedy to shake us out of that wild-eyed pursuit of all those things we think we need to do and into that clarity. Clarity is a word we use in Christian circles, right? Into that clarity. Where we can really hear what God says. So now, what stands between us and obedience? Is it knowledge? No, it's not really. It's true hearing and it's clarity. I, I know I'm like that. I know God's screaming about things. And I know they apply to my life. But until God literally puts His finger on it, I never make the connection. 
And I'm not the dumbest guy in the world, but I never make the connection. So, a little bit more. Just through the simplest of resources, uh, we can cobble together a strong and convicting definition of obedience to God. When a believer is biblically obedient, he or she hears God's word and acts on it. He or she demonstrates their trust in God by altering their lives. Now, let's take a step back. Obedience is not obedience is not a demonstration of submission as much as it is a demonstration of trust. Want to be obedient to God? Because I trust Him. Because I trust Him. You may have had somebody give you, a, for lack of a better term, an order or a command at some point in your life, but they made it abundantly clear to you that they were doing it for your own good and that you need to trust them. God's obedience to God is fueled by the fact that we trust God. When I'm disobedient to God, it's just a... I'm just telling Him I don't trust Him. I don't trust His way. I don't trust that He's got this. I don't trust that He's in control. I've got to do it myself because God's not trustworthy. He's got butterfingers. He'll drop. He'll drop what's important. I've spent my whole life thinking of obedience as a function of submission. And obedience is absolutely biblically a function of trust. Of whether I trust God or not. Hey, why be obedient about your money? Because you trust God. Because you trust God. Because you know God's good for it. We've, we've lived it. Okay, so what do we say? He said he demonstrates their, he or she demonstrates their trust in God by altering their lives, changing their minds. Changing our minds. Now, I love to say that one because it's not a young people thing. Because no offense, you guys change your minds all the time about everything. You have radically changed in the last 10 years about stuff. Some of us in this room have not changed our mind about anything in years and years and years. This is a snow on the mountain problem. We get locked in. We get stuck. We start thinking, either we think we know everything, which I don't think is very often, or we're scared to admit that we don't know something. Because we're supposed to have it all figured out at 60. Any 60-year-old's got everything figured out? <laughs> Says Buford, who's not even 60. <laughs> Nowhere near. <laughs> Buford, maybe by 60. That's good. I'm hoping, but it's, I'm running out of time, man. I'm almost there. Not, not, not close. I think sometimes it's just, it's just fueled by doubt. We, we're, we're so scared to admit we might have something wrong. And that what God wants me to do is, is radically change the way I think about everything. Because more often than not, what people do, we dis, most, most of our opinions simply disagree with the truth that God has given us. If you leave it up to me, I'd make a mess of the world. God's trying to bring order to chaos. Change your minds. Conforming our actions. Acting the way God wants to do. And surrendering our will to the will of God stated in the Bible. So that no longer do I have this pernicious will that always wants my way. That I now have, I now have that, that peace, that calm attitude that comes with having turned everything over to God. I realize what I've never, what I don't realize very often, that I don't have to struggle. I might feel like I'm on a tightrope, but there's a gigantic net and I can't miss it. That even if I fall, I'm going to get caught. So many of our problems just come from the fact that we are stressed out trying to guide ourselves through the quagmire that is this world. 
And God knows the path. I just have to follow him. Look, in Deuteronomy 11, 26-28, we'll get as far as we can today, folks. I've been uh, longer than I predicted, to be honest with you. Moses defines the cosmic difference between obedience and rebellion by saying, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. Now, hey, look, if you want to you talk about obedience from the punitive side, from the legal side, from God's perspective, God sees obedience in two ways. Blessing or curse. Being obedient brings a blessing. Being disobedient brings a curse. Now, I don't know how you guys have lived. Maybe you guys have just had, had charmed lives. I fully know that in, the time, that in my time, there have been times in which God was cursing me. In which my life was so aberrant to the living God that He had to inflict upon me pain to draw my attention to where it must be. As Jim Cimbala said decades ago, he said that all God ever wanted was our attention. I will add to that, all God's ever wanted is our attention, and he'll get it. There is no doubt he will get it. God is ruthless in his love. He needs for us to pay attention to him, and he will do whatever it takes to slow us down to the point that we have to listen. Which means he'll take everything. He'll strip our lives bare. The blessing if you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now that's deep, and I want to get through at least this part. If we pick up next time, that'll be fine. Three matters are painfully clear as they're defined by the words of Moses' passage. First, blessings always come with being obedient to the commandments of the Lord. Now that's it. It's, like I said, there's, there's another aspect of it, another facet, if you will. I always saw obedience as submission because I saw obedience in a, with, with a lost eye or with, lost, with a lost brain. Was that obedience was God keeping me from doing what I really wanted to do. Now, mind you, I really want to do some terrible stuff. There's no doubt about that. And God's got to tame that. If he doesn't, I'm a wild man. I'm destructive to myself and, and I will destroy my family. There's no doubt. God has to bring fear to me or I will be outrageously bad. There's no doubt about that. But see, I always saw it as submission as somehow I, me wanting to do that was a good thing. And God was keeping me from something good. But when I see it as trust, it means that God knows what? He knows that way is the way that seems right to a man, and it always leads to what? To death. It always leads to death. God is standing in the way of me doing what I want to do, because what I want to do is going to destroy everything I love and kill me. So it's not submission, it's trust. But it's also the idea that I always really kind of thought that people who kind of got to do what they wanted to do when I was trying to live for Christ were somehow, now this is, this is dumb, but I thought it, and I bet you've thought it too, that somehow they're the lucky ones. Like when you drive by their house and they're all having a party and you know that they're going to be in that party doing things that you can't do. But because of your 
somewhat Christian reputation, you weren't even invited. That somehow you're getting cheated and they're getting rewarded. Now I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's deeply immature, but I'm telling you that I believe Christians think that way. I know I did at times. I know I did. Because once again, I'm processing this with, a, with an unconformed part of my mind that somehow says those people are just lucky that they don't have to live the hard way we have to live. Not at all. We're living the blessed life. They're living the cursed life. They may have moments of fleshly pleasure now, but if they do not repent and believe the gospel, they will have an eternity of what? Of suffering. The worst we're ever going to have it is right here, right now. It's as bad as it gets. Your eternal life is going to be unimaginable. I'll be honest with you. The only limitations within the scripture are the fact that God had to use human terms to define, to define or describe heavenly conditions. You want to know what heaven looks like? It's beyond human words. We won't have the language to describe it until we get there. Wow. It's your home. You were born again to it. Isn't that amazing? That's the blessing. There's the idea. I, I, all those years are so wrong. All those years so many people are so wrong. I thought that somehow I was giving something up. I'm not. What I'm doing is throwing away the trash and embracing the gold. The gold of life that's there in heaven where nothing can steal it. They can take your life for the glory of the living God, but they cannot take your mansion held in trust by God. Nobody robs his house. There's no power over him. It's amazing. It's an amazing idea. All this time I've been so wrong. There it is right before us. He's like, what are you talking about? You know, is it, a, is it a tough path sometimes? Is it narrow? Sure. But it leads to infinite glory. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? You're worried about that over there when you're going to get this? This is what matters. Look, our Father, the lawgiver, and the redeemer of his wavered people will bless us when we strive to carefully and conscientiously keep his commands. The economy of righteousness that the Lord has created in the cruel and corrupt earth, centering around the truth of Scripture, is based upon the notion that faithful people will obey the word of God. Now, look, those are my words, and I, sometimes I just get carried away you know, English major, I apologize. But here's the deal. Here's the straight stuff here. Faithful people obey the word of God. Don't you want to be faithful? Hey, look. There's a lot of husbands and wives in this room. A lot of them. Don't you want to be seen as faithful? What do people think about an unfaithful husband or an unfaithful wife? It's shame, right? It's derision. It's insult. To be known, to be accused of that is a, is, is, is a violation of your honor as a person. 
in, in a love relationship with the living God. I want to be pursued, be perceived by God as faithful. Because what's the, what does he say? Remember, he insults it, adulterers and adulteresses. God's reaction is, if I'm not faithful, I'm an adulterer to him. I'm supposed to be sworn to him, flesh to flesh, body to body, love, heart to heart. And I've given it to somebody else. Without permission, without right. Faithfulness. Faithful people obey the word of God. So, in my gleaning from this, God is going to see disobedience as unfaithfulness. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. Just a few more moments that I have remaining. At the same time, the Lord is clear that to disobey, to rebel against the will of God as expressed within the Scriptures is to be cursed. To have the entire weight of the holy wrath of God focused like a tempest upon human life. Consequently, the Scripture is clear that the nature of the offense is of little importance because all disobedience is idolatrous. That's what he says. He says this, he ends with, But turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you to go after other gods that you have not known. So God doesn't see it any other way. When I decide that God's way is not good enough for me, that whatever God says I'm supposed to think is not good enough, what God says I'm supposed to do is not good enough, what God, what God says I'm supposed to feel is not good enough, then what I have done is this. Instead of just saying, God, I'd rather do something different, I think the illustration Matt Chandler gave was perfect when it comes to human sin. He said the humans think that God says turn right, but I'll just turn left and run as fast as I can, and that's the same. God doesn't care as long as I'm working hard. When He literally told me what to do. To God, obedience is better than what? Sacrifice. So to God, if I'm disobedient, I have chosen to worship another God. I just think of all the things living in the deep south that I know the Bible tells us we're supposed to just think about other people. And how many people refuse to change their mind about that? And I just what I want to say is this. The Bible says you're an, you're an idolater. The Bible says you have forsaken God. Because God says this is what you think about this. Isn't it amazing? God literally gives us... It's not just that you become a believer. He's all told me exactly what I'm supposed to think about other people. And I, will, I refuse to think it. So guess what? I'm an idolater. The cross wasn't good enough. The blood wasn't powerful enough. Because God says this is the way it is. And I say, no way. Uh-uh. I'm not going to do that. I'm an, I'm an idolater. I'm an idol worshiper. I'm a prophet of Baal. That God simply does not... Well, what I can tell... I guess the point I'm making here is that God simply does not play around about disobedience. He doesn't look at his people and say, well, it's just, he doesn't do that. I do that. I do that. You make a mistake or you come to me and you've got a problem. No, I mean, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You know why? Because I mess up all the time. I've been hypocritical before, but I'm not that hypocritical. I'm a total... You come to tell me, well, I forgot to do this. I'm not going to get mad at you. You know why? Because I forget to do everything. I'm always forgetting stuff. I'm not that much of a hypocrite. But God, when God tells us to do stuff and He's perfect, 
He's not, there's, no, there's no hypocrisy in him. He is perfect. We're told to be perfect as God is perfect. God can judge us because he's never sinned. He can call it idolatry because that's what it is. After all, the person involved has chosen to follow another will instead of God's and to bring honor and glory to someone or something else, not the Lord. To adhere to the human heart instead of the will and purpose of Christ is to deny the Savior and to defame His name. I mean, I want to be abundantly clear about that. When I've chosen disobedience over the will and purpose of God for my life, what I've really done is I've chosen a human heart. Probably my own. Probably my own. I decided I couldn't do that. Or better yet, I decided I wouldn't do that. It was too hard. It's too difficult for me to forgive my enemies. Too difficult for me to stop holding grudges. Too difficult for me to stop gossiping. Too difficult for me to stop being a bigot. It's too difficult. I grew up like that. I don't know anything else. Lies. Lies. You were born to hell. God transformed you into a child of heaven. By that definition, the impossible is now absolutely possible. Because what happened to you if you were born again was totally impossible. How does Christ compare it? A camel passing through the eye of a needle. There's no way you can twist Him. No way you can maneuver Him just right. He won't go through. Unless a miracle happens. And God has worked that miracle. So can I stop thinking and feeling and believing and doing all these terrible things? Absolutely. Do you know why? Because if God saved my soul, then everything is possible. Everything that was impossible before is now absolutely possible. But we can't follow the human heart to do it. All disobedient wretches are idolaters, whether they intend to do it or not. Some follow themselves, but ultimately they're following the God of this world. The prophet Isaiah promises that believers who commit themselves to obedience will be rewarded by the Lord. When he writes in Isaiah 1.19, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Even though the clear emphasis in these verses is that obedience in the heart, life of a man is a joy to the heart of God and rewarded by the ancient of days, it is also inferred that obedience is bred in human life by something deeper and more emotional. Like I said, folks, we may start off with an obedience that, that stems just from the fact that we can read and we know this is what God wants us to do. But because our salvation is relational, He knows us intimately. We know Him over time. We grow in love and appreciation for Him. Therefore, our obedience isn't going to end up just in this, this kind of rote, sort of, uh, sort of low-level passion or low-level commitment. It's going to grow into something better, something deeper. There's something in there that's deeper and more emotional. In order to commit their lives to honor Christ and pursue Him through holiness, men and women must be willing to do so. What does he say? He says this, If you are willing and obedient. If you're willing. That sounds like I have a commitment there, doesn't it? Because I know this much in my life, there have been a lot of things I wasn't willing to do and I didn't do them. That's in the heart. It's deep in the man. 
deep in here. The heart's not engaged. If the passions are not driving the awareness of the Lord's commandments and fueling a willingness to see a life change to meet these standards, then there will be no meaningful adherence to the Word of God. Folks, something just comes alive inside of us at salvation that encourages us to be obedient to the living God. By way of salvation, the giving of a new heart and a new spirit, then men and women become capable of committing themselves to a higher and better way of life. Capable of committing ourselves to a better life. But it starts where? It starts in the heart. It's not a head issue. We talk about that all the time. This is not a head issue. This is a heart issue. When Moses, throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy, talks about ideas like, like circumcision, he's very, very clear, right? He says, circumcise your hearts. Change your heart. Ezekiel promises that God through Ezekiel promises to give us a new heart, a new spirit. It starts where? It starts in the heart. Have you been given the new heart? The new heart of, of, of the new birth? Has the blood of Christ shed broad for the sins of many been applied to your life? As the song might say, if you've been to Calvary. Have you seen? Has your heart been made infinitely aware of the sacrifices of Christ for the sins of His people? Do you know now fully in your heart that the debt has been paid? That Christ now reigns over your life. That's why we're declaring to be both Savior and Lord. To the Lord we owe obedience. To the Savior we owe thanks. The one who saved us now commands that we go forth and be obedient. And you'll never be obedient till he is your Savior. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. Father God, I pray that I did it rightly tonight. Father God, I pray also, God, that, that I was not unclear or callous with your word. Father God, I pray, Lord, that, that we came together. We had a, a good night in Christ, Father God. And that you, Lord, are, are awakening in our hearts, God, a desire to be, to be, God, radically obedient to you. We can never be too obedient, Father God. This church cannot. We can never be, God, too conformed to your word or too committed to your cause, Father God. We can never be that. So pray, Father God, that you're doing that in us, that as we start with these ideas of worship and obedience, Father God, that you're going to grow into something through us, Father. I pray that now, Father God. We love you and we thank you, Lord. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.